glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, let's stand. We'll read Jude verses 1 through 4. I'll give us a little bit of review about what we looked at last week as we introduced the book of Jude. And then we'll look specifically at the end of verse 4. And basically what we want to do tonight is kind of throw a magnifying glass on the final sub-point of our final point and focusing on these men and give you some examples. What I want to do tonight is what I ended up not really being able to incorporate last week is give you some examples. I did some research today of some people today who personify what we're warned about in the book of Jude. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, in, in looking at these four verses, last week we considered the author, verse 1, being Jude. He identifies himself as the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And so that tells us about both his heavenly and human identity. Then the audience he's speaking to is those that are sanctified by God the Father, those that are preserved in Jesus Christ, and those that are called. And that deals with, sorry, we're sanctified, sealed with the Spirit, in, preserved in Christ, and called. And then thirdly, we looked at his affection for them. He desires manifold blessing, mercy, peace, and love, and multiplied blessing. Not just mercy, peace, and love, but mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. As we dealt with that last week, one of the things that I, I tried to point out is that while his message is positive, for it to be positive, he's going to have to deal with a negative subject, and that is men that were creeping in. That's what he gets into in verse 4. He begins to appeal to them in verse 3, rather. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said a number of things about these verses last week, and that was really where a lot of the message was at. And so some of this is going to be repeating what I said last week, but I'm okay with that tonight. I want to really focus in especially on verse 4. So last week we dealt with his appeal. The earnestness in his appeal, he said, when he gave all diligence to write unto them of the common salvation, it was needful that he should write unto them and exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith. Meaning there were those who were undermining the faith, the body of doctrine concerning Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. There were those creeping in, undermining that faith, and the response to those creeping in was that those who know the truth, those who are sanctified and those who are preserved, those who are called, those who are saved people, have a responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith. The average Christian is passive about their faith, not active. Earnestly contending is something we actively do. 
It doesn't say being earnestly contentious, but earnestly contending, meaning we cannot be half-hearted about holding firm to the truth that's delivered to us in the Bible. The fact that we are saved by grace through faith, but what he deals with specifically here, which is ironic, is something we've seen an uprising in. I find this ironic. I read a man who wrote an article on this subject today uh, on this matter of what men are calling radical grace. Those who see it for what it is will call it uh, hyper-grace or we'll call it radical grace. The man made a good point that I was reading after today, a man that I wouldn't agree on on some other issues, but he was spot on on this issue of those who are radicalizing God's grace. He said it's not hyper-grace, it's pseudo-grace, meaning it is not grace at all. What's being preached and taught as the grace of God is nothing more than saying because of God's grace, we have no obligation to live under any kind of restriction. You are in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. Your position in Christ is righteous. One of the men I was studying today, and I don't generally study men who are teaching something false. I did just enough today to try to get some examples of what I'm talking about. One of the things that caught me a little off guard is how difficult it was to finally get to a point where they made the turning point of taking the grace of God, and then they begin to turn it. And I'm going to speak to you about that in just a moment. Because, because... First Corinthians says there are many voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. And these men who crept in in the book of Jude would literally have to weasel their way into an assembly, meaning they had to come where the people of God were or find them out in the world someplace, but they had, they had to come into the physical assembly of God's people. Today, these same men can creep in much easier. They can creep in through the television screen. They can creep in through an Internet. They creep in through broad publications of books and so forth. Uh, one of the things I found today, one of, the, one of the gentlemen, I looked up four or five men who would be considered radical grace preachers or the grace movement preachers. And I'll give you some names here in a moment to be aware of. But there were five. I found a list of the top five. And one of them, who I am aware of, have read some of what he has to say previously, uh, it was very hard to find anything by him in writing. Everything was videos and audio. Very difficult to get anything by him in writing. And I thought, how interesting. Uh, Because when you hear him speak, he is a very gifted speaker. Very calm, very easy to listen to. And about 99% of what he says is true. At least in the first five to ten minutes. But if you hang with him, there's a prevailing message. And that is, because you're in Christ, God sees no sin in you at all. And that's true in heaven. But meaning, there's nothing you can do to get out of sorts with God. There's nothing you can do to be out of fellowship with God. You're in Christ. And what he does is takes verses in 1 John about fellowship and equates them to salvation. He takes verses about our justification and equates them to our practical sanctification. He takes the Bible and turns it. He takes a verse that needs to be rightly divided in its proper context and, by the way, knows his Bible very, very, very well well enough to know how to twist it to make it say what he wants it to say. And so I say all of that to say uh, we might think, oh, I could recognize one of these guys from a way off. I'll be honest with you. Um, I I would believe because of my call and my vocation, I would have a trained ear for error. And you'd have to listen to one of these guys for quite a bit of while 
and know what the Scripture says, be able to say, you know what, that guy is teaching error. So with this thought in mind, I'm a little scattered at the beginning. As we looked last week, the last point was that in Jude's appeal, he appeals to them and exhorts them they should earnestly contend for the faith. That's where I begin. It takes an earnest, active part on us to identify false teachers and know to shut them off. There are men who are good men who have blind spots. There are men who uh, perhaps are um, every man is prone to be judged against what the Word of God says. But there are men who are intentionally mishandling the Word of God with the purpose of deception. And the answer for those men is always the same. We are not to, to listen to them. We'll get more instruction about how to respond to them here in a little bit. But tonight, I just want to take the message and make it a little more practical to where we live if, with the Lord's help and give a little more detail about how these kind of men operate. So with all that having been said, the the final point of last week was his exposure of those who crept in unawares. Hold your finger in Jude and go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Everyone from Jesus down to the very final writing apostle, the apostle John, as far as I know, everyone warned that in the last days false teachers and false prophets would arise, men that Jesus called wolves in, sheep's clothing and i think sometimes we forget that there are let me give you something that's easy to pick on that none of us have a hard time with if i said the name uh joseph smith you'd say no the guy was a charlatan he was a false teacher well we know that we know that um and, and if we're not careful we think all the false teachers are like him someone you can easily listen to what they say take your bible and say that's nonsense we will not become gods i mean if you read your bible you know that's not true so you have to have to have a replacement Bible or another holy book like the Book of Mormon to get you to think that. Or someone like Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, who believed that Jesus existed but completely taught that he was not the Son of God. Well, that's easy to identify. Certainly it is. But I don't really think that's the kind of people Jude is talking about. Uh, those men were, were blatant and very clear apostate men who are recognized broadly as, as leaders of cults, no doubt. I could pick a little bit on them, someone like Joel Osteen, and most people, including baby Christians, even lost people, know that guy is not teaching the truth. But I'm not so concerned with those as I am, some who get a little closer to the truth and yet are still leading astray. My concern tonight is especially with the writers and preachers of our day who are speaking our language so much they are pre- uh, the man I'm talking about that I read earlier today tells that we are certainly saved by grace, that you cannot lose your salvation. Amen. What he does is he takes a truth and he runs it into an application, and I'll give you some examples here in a few minutes, uh, that leads to this. What it leads to is a living a life of continual sin, knowing that's okay, I'm in Christ. Turns the grace of God, match something. Without the restraining work of the Holy Spirit to guide you and correct you, you and I will all become lascivious. That means to live in wantonness, unrestraint, lack of restraint in our lives. And so some are more radical in their teaching than others. Um, But again, I'll give you some examples here in just a few moments. Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus gives us this warning about false prophets. Um, In the end of the chapter, let me find my place here, just one, one moment. Um, let's go to verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, here's the verse I want us to notice. What does he say? Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil 
fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. There are men whose doctrine is wrong because they are false. They are not genuinely called of God. They are not genuinely uh, concerned about God's people. They have another agenda. And the Lord Jesus said, by appearance, they're going to look like a sheep. I read that verse because Jude said, verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares. How? How do these men, their manner, tonight their manner is this, or their method, if you would, is to deceive. They give the impression we are the same as you. We are one of his sheep. They give the outward appearance, the, the verbal assent. We are one of God's sheep. We're Christians too. We're Christians too, uh, they'll say. And uh, it's very possible that these, these wolves can come to Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church. They're not just on the Internet. They're not just as authors on books. They can come to Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, say, Pastor, can I look at the statement of faith? I believe everything you folks believe and would love to be a, be a servant in this church. Can I join? I gotta, let me ask you something. If someone came here and said, I was saved at this point in time. I believe everything you people believe. I want to serve the Lord in this place. I've been scripturally baptized. And they meet all the criteria that we say you must. At least they say they do. What are we going to do? Receive them. Well, of course we are. So then what do you do? What happens is the Bible says, by their fruits, you shall know them. You can find folks that can come in and everybody thinks they're sheep because that's what they look like. But if they're a wolf, they're a wolf. doesn't matter what they've put on the outside. The nature of a wolf is I'm going to devour. The nature of a wolf is that I want to eat up. I don't remember the fellow's name. He's uh, European. But I see today he's got, uh, he's, he's more of the charismatic bent. But he's one of these radical, he wrote a book, I believe it's called Radical Grace. And uh, he really speaks about how the Lord basically wants you happy. And he deals a lot with spiritualism. But I did notice that on his website, if you signed up, became a member of his, um, of his movement, you could get this $1,495 value for this amount. And you could get this $1,500 value package for this amount. And it was all about money, 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 and more money. And I find that when you follow the ministries of these men, and I'll get again more specific here in a minute, there's a fruit, and this is what Jude deals with, there is an outcome of their ministry. So their method is to creep in as sheep, though they're really wolves, they creep in among us undetected and disguised. I'll say this again, if you have to creep into any place, you're doing something wrong. Anybody that loves the Lord should be able to walk into a church where people love the Lord and say, and it should be clear, here's what I'm doing, you don't have to try to sneak your way. You ought to be able to be honest about who you really are and a, and a God-loving, Christ-honoring church won't have a problem with you. When you have to conceal what you really believe to become a member of a church, either that church is wicked or you are. And if I'm not really wicked, why would I want to join a wicked church? Are you with me? When you have to hide what you believe to become part of one of God's churches, that's a problem. Jude said, this is their manner, they creep in. Jesus said, this is their manner, they creep in. They disguise who they really are so that you'll not catch on to what they're up to. But a wolf is going to eat sheep. That's what he's going to do. And what he says here, Jude says, There are men crept in unaware who before of old were ordained this condemnation. Ungodly men, here's their fruit. Turning the grace of God 
into lasciviousness. I looked at that word turning, and it carries the idea of perverting. Um, the, the word turning uh, carries the idea of twisting or perverting or obviously transforming or changing something from one thing into another thing. What caught my attention for tonight's message is this. It doesn't say they have turned, and obviously that's true, but their method is to take something that's good, twist it to bring out a vile outcome. They take the grace of God and twist it so that it produces, there's the fruit, in the life of their adherents, lasciviousness. I've watched people that I know that at one time believed in staying sober as a Christian and because of the grace of God, they've decided it's okay for them to imbibe alcohol, sit in bars, go to nightclubs and go to churches that look like nightclubs. All of a sudden where they used to have some restraint and you know what lasciviousness is? The loss of restraint, complete wantonness. It is generally and normally directed towards sexuality though not exclusively. It deals with filthiness in the life. I'm now willing to get dirty. Uh, let me read this quote. This is, I don't know who this lady is. I've heard her name before. Her name is Jen Hatmaker. It says, God is here and we are not alone. We can't deliver folks from their pits, but we can sure get in there with them until God does. Live long enough and it becomes clear that stuff is not the stuff of life. People are... We need each other, so we probably ought to practice radical grace because our well-flaunted opinions and cold companions, uh, our well-flaunted opinions are cold companions when real life hits. Now, this is ironic to me because I sat in the jail this week uh, or last week and told men, if you're in a pit, you do no one else any good by getting in the pit with them. I use those very words. If someone's in a pit of sin, you don't deliver them by getting down and getting dirty with them. This radical grace teacher says just the opposite. You jump in their pit with them until they can get out. You realize the insinuation of that? If you take that and you run it, you think about the pit we preached on on Sunday morning, the snare of the devil. Are we really supposed to jump in the pit with people and then you watch the life and that's what happens? I heard of a woman recently, a woman pastor. I read this in in an article. And this woman pastor uh, has now, um, she's not married, but she's with child. And her church, believing in the grace of God, graciously encouraged her to remain as their pastor, knowing that we are all fallen and broken people. So already she's a pastor as a woman, which is against God's will. Then she's a woman pastor who's living in fornication against God's will, and they are applauding themselves for not firing her as their pastor. They're glorying in their shame. This is the kind of thing Jude is talking about turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The other gentleman I read after some today is a man by the name of Andrew Farley. He's far more cunning, as far as I can see, in the promotion of this. He's very good. If you were brought up under sound doctrine about salvation, it would be easy to get sucked into some of the things he's teaching. He says this concerning Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to test this statement. Discipline is training for the, for the future... He's talking about the word chastisement. His Bible doesn't say chasten. It says discipline. Discipline is training for the future, not punishment for the past. Just chew on that for a minute. He says many people confuse discipline and punishment. I can agree to that point. I can agree to, to some point that discipline is, a, is an infliction of pain to teach someone to go the right direction. But he makes a huge point to say it repeatedly. Discipline is training for the future, not punishment for the past. 
God will not punish you if you're his child. That's the idea. He goes on also to say, discipline is not a reaction of God to sin in our lives because he believes that God refuses to see any sin in us no matter what we do if we've been saved. And I can tell you that's what he believes. He teaches of 1 John chapter 1, 9, that 1 John chapter 1, 9 is emphatically not intended for the saved person. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says it doesn't make sense that at Calvary Jesus bore all your sins and you've been forgiven for all your sins and he's removed them as far as east is from the west, at least until you commit one. What he's doing is saying the doctrine of forgiveness that applies to salvation is the same as it applies to fellowship. The Bible teaches very differently. Let me ask you a question. Can we find, and this is, this is interactive a little bit tonight. Can you think of anything in the scripture that shows that God does indeed incorporate chastisement such as pain or even death in the life of one of his own children as a response, not a reaction, but a response to sin in our lives? That would be Old Testament. That doesn't count. <laughs> You're right. Yes, Jonah got swallowed by a whale because of sin in his life. How about New Testament? Is there any response of God towards someone who is a believer? I'm sorry? Ananias and Sapphira. Some would say, well, they were lost. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. How about this? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Bible says that there were those who were taking the table of the Lord unworthily. Some were sick and some were sleeping. These are people that were part of the Corinthian church who were taking the Lord's table with disregard and disrespect for what it was all about. And the Bible says, For this cause some are sick and some are sleeping, and uh, that meaning some had died, and that this judgment, this chastisement, was God sparing them from a future judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says that the man that was in the church who was committing fornication was being turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So here's what I'm saying. Mr. Farley says a Christian should never mourn over sin in your life. You're forgiven. You should never grieve over sin in your life. You're forgiven. No matter what you do, it's already forgiven. That God doesn't see your sin. No matter what you do, nothing you do can cause him. You don't need to grieve. You just need to enjoy. He wrote a book called Relaxing with God. He wrote another book called Heaven is Now. That ought to tell us something. Huh? My point is this, but I'm telling you, if you heard the man speak for five or ten minutes, you'd go, wow, amazing, uh, at least for a few minutes. What I've noticed with these false teachers is they begin by, by adhering to a Bible doctrine by teaching truth. So what he much he says, much what I heard today from this man about grace is absolute truth. It's not the truth that they lay forward in front of you. They say, now the Bible says this, so this is true. If you're in Christ, you are eternally secure. If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God, and that relationship cannot change. Repeatedly mentioned being sealed by the Spirit of God. Friend, that's Bible. He says the child of God does not operate toward victory, but from victory. Hey, I agree with that. But then he turns that to say, so you need not think ever about sin in your life that's taken care of. Now, how far does that go? You think with me, where does that run to? Where does that lead to? If God is not dealing with me, if I'm under chastisement, so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, there were some in the church who had sin in their life, approached the Lord's table, took the symbol of fellowship while they were out of fellowship, and God put affliction in their life, 
illness and some death as his children. But if you're taught that's not what's taking place, are you going to get right with God? If you're taught that that is not God's response to disobedience in your life, not because you're lost, not because you're not forgiven, but because you're out of fellowship, it's going to lead to sin in the life, continued sin in the life. There's so much of God's word being disregarded. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we won't turn there for time's sake, but this idea that children of God do not need to worry about defilement. The, the idea is that you cannot... There is no defilement in you. He, he, he handled 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it talks about um, uh, cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. He said, that's not filth on you as the Christian. It's the filth of the world that you need to separate from. But there is no filth on you as a Christian in your spirit. Ask them, is it possible for a, a Christian to sin after they get saved? Yes, and the confession is not so... I'm worried that I'm going to lose my salvation. The confession is I'm not behaving as a Christian ought to. That's sin. And that harms my fellowship with my father. And until I agree with God that what I've done is sin, I'm not going to be back in fellowship. I didn't lose my position as a son of God, but that's never dealt with. My point is this. Here is a man who's taking the grace of God and through cleverly handling the truth and then misapplying it, producing a fruit of lasciviousness. I am, I am baffled by the number of people who have opened their minds to sinful conduct, sinful attitudes, sinful behavior that's going to lead down the... Let me ask you something. How many men do you think have committed adultery while under the influence of alcohol? It would scare us to know the fact of that. There are men who would never dream of it until they're under the influence of alcohol. There is a promotion among so-called preachers of grace today... They will fly in your face and call you names if you dare insinuate that it's a sin to drink alcohol. They'd sooner defend alcohol than they would the Bible. I know that by personal experience. They are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Some say, not all those, you're calling all those people apostates. Let time bear that out, but by their fruits you shall know them. There's a movement abroad today to preach grace in such a way that it removes any kind of restraint in your life. Listen, we are not under the law of Moses, but friend, we're not living without law. Do you remember what Paul said? I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And in that section, he mentions to those that are without law as without law, but not without law to Christ. You realize Paul said, I will not get to the point where I do not live under the law, the governance of the mind of Jesus Christ on my life. There's a, a term I was put onto today. This term was coined in, I believe, the 16th century because there was a movement of turning God's grace into lasciviousness. And I'd never heard this, this, this term before, but there are people that are called antinomians. Anybody ever heard that term? Me either. We would call them today radical gracers. An antinomian is one of a sect who maintained that under the gospel dispensation... The laws of no use or obligation, or who hold doctrines which supersede the necessity of good works and a virtuous life. This sect originated with a man named John Agricola about the year 1538. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Let me read that definition again. There are those who are against law. An antinomian is someone who is against law. They, they believe and maintain that under the gospel dispensation, the law is of no use or obligation. Let me ask you a question. Did, did any of the writers of the New Testament ever go back to the law and make practical application to our conduct as Christians? Not for means of salvation, 
not for living under the code of the law. Can we think of any illustrations where the law of God, the Old Testament scripture, including the law that was written by Moses, was used to grab what's the spirit behind that law and how does that apply to the law of our lives? Can we think of anything? Help me now. How about thou shalt not covet? Is that one of the Ten Commandments? Is it not throughout our New Testament that we are to put away covetousness? The spirit of the law stands. Some will call it the moral law. Do you realize there was a moral law in place before there was ever a written law? Murder is still sin. Adultery is still sin. All those things are still sin. And there are those who want to free us from any kind. The Bible word for them is people who are unruly. So if there's any kind of obligation, then what we're doing is what they're saying is we've abandoned grace. Listen, I believe because I'm saved by grace, it creates some obligations in my life. Not to stay saved, but because I'm saved. And it's created by people who want to live lives without boundaries. I want to do what my flesh... This is what Jude's going to tell us. These are men that are... What kind of men? Ungodly men. And what tool do they take to promote their ungodliness? Grace. They use grace to promote ungodliness. I want to warn you of something. It doesn't matter if it's a member of this church or it's a preacher on the radio or if it's your pastor. You hear somebody using grace to give you a permission slip to do something you know the Word of God is against. You watch out. The grace of God is not a tool to allow us to permit our lusts to run rampant. The grace of God is a tool that liberates us from obeying our lusts. It is not a permission slip to get into them. And what happens is these same ungodly men start railing on people that would teach you, no, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You know if you're going to live soberly, that means temperate, of a temperate mind. That means you're going to have to learn to tell yourself no. Why? So that I can be saved or because I'm saved? Well, because I am. And so I give you these examples tonight to help us understand this, this mechanism, these men whose manner is deceitful, these men whose character is corrupt. The Bible says there are certain men crept in unawares. That's their, that's their mannerism. Uh, that is their, that is their, 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 their way of, of getting in, uh, who were of old ordained to this condemnation. So these are men that God foresaw and foreknew. These are men who are certainly condemned, ungodly men, and here's their method turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And then here's their message, denying and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What will ultimately happen with these men is they'll come to a place in the Bible and say, I know that's what that says, but that's not right. I believe, I believe this. And there are some men who've gotten caught up in this. I'm not saying again that they're all apostate. I don't know that. I'm not saying that. But there are men who've gotten caught up in taking 1 John 1, 9 and saying that's not for the Christian. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, the way that was handled by the man I listened to today was, you don't need to live your life every day thinking, oh no, did I confess them all? I got a question you. I believe that verse applies to me and I don't go to bed at night worried, oh no, did I miss a sin today to confess? You know why? Because I'm saved and I know it. But I do know this, when God says your fellowship is off with me because you've not been obeying me in this area, I'm going to do one of two things agree with him and confess it as sin and get back in fellowship or continue in sin and stay out of fellowship, God doesn't need me worrying about pointing out sin in my life. He knows how to do that. But when he does, I need to confess that. And so then uh, my point is this. By 
by, by denying. I mean, just, let me just finish with this tonight. We come to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We'll break this down. The Bible says, if we... All right, who's writing the verse 1 John 1, 9? John. How many of us agree John was a saint? Did he say, if you confess your sins or if we? He's including himself. If we confess our sins. He's talking... By the way, he's writing to believers. He's writing to this elect lady. He's writing to saved people. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, by the way, what context is that written in? Having our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven or having forgiveness because we're children of God and in dealing with our fellowship with God? Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The irony of this, the man who taught, that I'm talking to you about today is Mr. Firely, who teaches that 1 John 1, 9 does not apply to Christians, is saying we can walk in darkness and still be in fellowship with God because we're saved by grace. That's ultimately what he's teaching, is that you can walk in darkness, but because you're saved by grace, that doesn't affect your fellowship one, one bit at all. But the Bible says if we walk in darkness and say that we have fellowship, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He's actually teaching. You know what he's doing? Here's, here's the whole reason I went here. He's denying the truth of these verses. Flat out saying that's not what they mean. Now, he is cleverly denying it, masking it in teaching supposed truth. But the, the thing I'm trying to say tonight is there are men who are clever, but know this, watch the fruit of their work. Watch the fruit. Are they, are they leading people into a life that God called people to live, a life of godliness and holiness? That's the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is in all righteousness and goodness and truth. Is that the fruit of the ministry? Or is the fruit of the ministry lasciviousness, the removal of restraint in one's life to allow sin that we never would have allowed before under the instruction of Scripture when we take the Scripture and take the grace of God and twist it so that it allows us to live a life of, of no restraint, the last fruit of the Spirit is what? The last one mentioned of that ninefold fruit is temperance, meaning I'm going to have some restrictions in my life when the Spirit of God is leaving. There are some places and things the Spirit of God will never lead us to do. And so anyone who's taken the grace to say, grace means you have no, no kind of governance, no rules in your life, is someone who is using the grace of God and turning it to lead people into lasciviousness. I wish I had more time and more examples to give you. I'll say this. There, this is a growing movement. It's a growing movement in our day to take the grace of God and say, what, what can be a red flag to you is when they take the grace of God and say, God is crazy about you. God, is, God does love you very much. But do you realize the gospel is not about... It is about the love of God toward us. But that it is about the glory of God, not the glory of man. And when men are taking the gospel to say, really the gospel is all about you and your happiness. It's really about all about you and your happiness. No, it's all about him and his holiness. That's what the gospel's about. God did not say, I just, man, I just all I want is their happiness. He does love us and he wants to save us. But that's because he's good. It's because he's good. And so when someone takes the grace of God and begins to twist it and say it's all about you getting to live the life you really want to. Let your red flags go up. When they begin to take Scripture that is plain when compared with the rest of Scripture, be careful when there is a, when there is a, a teaching. I'll just say this, that because you're saved by grace, 
There's nothing you can do to displease God. There's so many verses in the Bible that talk about we're to walk unto all pleasing. The Lord Jesus Christ, five out of seven of his churches, he told them to repent. If grace means he has no problem with you, then why would he tell his own churches to repent? Does that make sense? But those those texts aren't dealt with. It's cherry-picked text to say, no, because of the grace of God, because you're saved by grace, you don't really even need to think about how you're, you know, you're walking. Does it please the Lord or not? The Bible says we're to prove what is acceptable to the Lord, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. We're to prove the will of God by presenting our bodies, living sacrifices. And so there's so much in Scripture in conflict with that. And I just want us to know tonight this concept of men taking the grace of God and turning it, taking a good thing, a holy thing, a Bible doctrine, twisting it so that the fruit of that is lasciviousness. It's alive and well. There are a dime a dozen. There are men with huge ministries and millions of dollars uh, because with huge followings and sometimes not so huge followings. It doesn't really matter. But there are some examples you can see. And what I want to do is warn you. You need, to, you need to know these characteristics. They creep in. They're ungodly men. Their method is to, to, to creep in and act like sheep, meaning they're going to present themselves as sincere and faithful believers. But their end result is this. They're going to take the grace of God and turn into lasciviousness. No verse, when I hear these so-called radical grace preachers, no verse in the Bible stands out to me more than the one we just read tonight. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And may I say this, while I have no doubt there's Phariseeism in our churches today, there's Phariseeism in independent Baptist churches, I have no doubt of that. There is what people want to call legalism. But it seems to me in the day we're living in, about 8 out of 10 charges of legalism is backed by a desire to live a loose life according to my lusts, but be okay with it because I'm saved by grace. That's not what God called us to. God has not called us to unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Mm-hmm.